Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. It's Groundhog Day! And I'm Jim Russ. It is Groundhog Day. <laughs> Another week in the bunker. Uh-huh. But it's yep. really, I'm really suffering down here. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. It's, it sounds horrible for you. It, it really is. Uh, but uh, I'm going to give you later in the show observations from the bunker. <laughs> oh, this ought to be great. <laughs> this observations from the bunker. Oh, boy. And every, and every week we'll have more and more observations <laughs> from the bunker as we do more bunkering. And <laughs> I'm scared. as you know, there's just a lot going on in IT. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, of course, security, security, security. Uh, WhatsApp accused this Israeli firm of using their software to uh, spy on leaders and people around and people around the world, it's, this is this has been an ongoing story. And there's they finally filed a lawsuit against this uh, company NSO in Israel. CISA, which is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, has issued a major alert. They're saying all these remote workers are not configured properly, and we're probably going to get a million hacked accounts a month unless something is done. Mm. So I'll talk a bit about that. And um, this week uh, we are going, oh yeah, ICANN refused to let the sale of the of the registry.org, you know, all the .org, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, all the nonprofit organizations have a .org on, in their web address. Yeah. You know, uh, like, you know, um, Kaiser.org, mm -hmm. for instance. And so that registry is is run by the the Internet Society, and they wanted to sell it for $1.1 billion to get some cash, and they wanted to sell it to a private investment firm. And people are saying, hey, wait a minute here. This doesn't look good for all the nonprofits uh, if their um, registry gets sold to a private equity firm. And so there was a lot of pushback against that. And... Uh, and I can block the sale. This week, we're going to feature Eric Wan. He's the founder of Zoom Video. You know, we everybody talks about Zoom Video. They have, they they host around 300 million uh, Zoom uh, sessions, Zoom participation sessions each um, each uh, day. They have 300 individual people log into to a Zoom session each day, 300 million. It's, it's become the dominant uh, video conferencing platform. And I want to talk a bit about uh, Eric Wan, the, the founder of that. He actually, we actually featured him three years ago before Zoom was such a big deal. But I thought, given the fact of Zoom's notoriety, yeah. we'd bring him back and, and highlight him again. 
And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Alex in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm opening a remote customer service business. You know, Alex, that's a, that's really a good that's idea. A, what kind of customer service, though? I mean, it's kind uh, of broad. It, yeah, he's uh, he's he's not being specific here. Okay. My, oh, here it is. Oh, my company will handle telephone and internet-based customer service for companies that prefer to outsource the service. Ah, okay. Oh, I see. So, oh. so instead of so instead of outsourcing it to India, he, they can outsource it to Alexandria. That's that's a really good idea. It will be absolutely critical that my office have a working internet connection at all times with zero downtime. Yeah. I've decided to subscribe to two internet providers, Xfinity and Verizon. Uh, now, uh, so that I, to ensure my uptime, is it possible to connect both internet service providers to the same Wi-Fi network? Or do I manually have to switch the router cables when I want to go from one network to another. I question. need a little help on this, Alex and Fair, and then he signed it, Alex and Fairfax. Well, there are several ways to use two internet connections with one network, but I recommend that you set up your situation, set up your network. But you first of all, before you even configure your network, you have to have a router that will support two wide area networks, two WANs. Most of the routers that you buy support only one WAN. Yeah. So you you know you plug in your you know you plug in your router and then that's it, but you can buy dual WAN routers, and so you buy a dual WAN router, a dual wide area network router. So you you can plug two um, two modems into it, and and it will then support two two um, two internet connections at the same time. Now you can configure. Your router, once you, and I'll recommend a router that you can buy. They they run anywhere from two hundred dollars to five hundred dollars, depending on how much throughput you want. Mm -hmm. I'm going to recommend a a two hundred dollar device. You can you can operate it in two modes. You have the failover mode, which is what you were thinking. You basically have a primary connection, which let's say in this case is Xfinity, and that would be active, and then you'll have a backup or passive connection, which say would be Verizon. So it will just run on the Xfinity network, and then if any time the Xfinity network goes down, it will automatically switch over to the Verizon network. And then when Xfinity comes back online, it'll switch back. That's called the failover mode. Now, that has a disadvantage in that you're paying for two networks. You got the band, you're paying for bandwidth on two networks, but you're only using the bandwidth of one network at any one time. So there's a much better way to configure it, and the, the router that I'm going to recommend you can configure it either way, would be the load balancing mode. In this case, both interconnect, inter, internet connections are used at the same time, and all your traffic is split between the two connections. So you basically are able to double your network bandwidth by using both connections. And then what happens if one of them goes out, all the traffic just goes to the remaining one. And so... You do, uh, then you have the advantage of using the bandwidth of both networks, and you also have the redundancy advantage that you need for uptime. So I'd recommend you configure it in the load balancing mode. Now, what you want to do, now, a, um, you, you can go to uh, Amazon, and you can look for dual WAN routers. There are a lot of them. The, there's a nice one called Synology RT2600AC dual WAN router. 
Now, it's currently on Amazon. I checked it this morning. It's $214. It supports both load balancing and failover modes. Now, if you really want to make certain, but now you still have a single point of failure, of course, in your router. You, you, you've got redundancy in your internet connection, but your router's a single point of failure. So if you want to have absolute assurance that you're never going to be out for any long time, you may want to order a second router. And then what you want to do is configure the router just like the first router. So in the event your router fails, you simply unplug the failed router, plug in the new router, and it will start working immediately because it's already configured. That's probably the sort of the best configuration you can get for a, for a, a guaranteed uptime in a, in a home network situation. That was a great email. Yeah. We got an email from Knock in Cleveland, Ohio. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm at home during the lockdown here in Ohio, and we'd like to get some projects in the gig economy. You know the gig economy. Yeah. That's where you where, that's where you just pick up uh, pick up jobs, right? Pick up uh, pick up projects. Are there many of those right now to 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 have? There are. Yeah, there are. Huh. There's a, there, there, there are a lot of things on the gig economy. Yeah, people, people, people are going more and more to remote. Companies are now trying to get more digital. There's all, there's all this digital marketing stuff. Uh, we're, we're sort of shifting the way we do business. So now we've moved to an environment where the gig economy, which is a, which kind of a remote economy, is more aligned with how we're operating every day. And... Uh, and she goes on to say, Knock goes on to say, are there any websites where I can place my profile and pick up some remote work? Knock in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, Knock, this is a great idea. That's a real option during the shutdown, uh, during the shutdown of this caused by this coronavirus. And I'd say almost anybody could, could pick up some extra work in the gig economy. You just have to figure out what you like to do and what you do well. Now, there are a number of sites that are really good. I mean, there are just lots and lots of them. I picked... I picked eight or nine here. Guru.com has been around since 1998. They've, they, they give a broad range of, of projects that you can have. There's Golance.com. That's got more than five, 500,000 users. Fiverr.com. That's a micro job market. Fiverr. It's called F-I-V-E-R-R.com. Fiverr. It means I'll give you a Fiverr if you do the job. So that's it's kind of micro jobs. So very small jobs, small pay. Fiverr.com. Then there's peopleperhour.com. Now that site's been around since 2007. It was started in the UK, but but they but they handle gigs, you know, all around the world. Upwork.com. Uh, that's a big one. That's the largest global freelancing site. That started in 2010. It's very tech heavy. Uh, you got freelancer.net. That's been around since 1999. That's also UK-centric. A lot of these were started in, I mean, they were started in Silicon Valley and UK and in Canada, the ones I'm talking about. We've got LinkedIn Profinder. That's part of the LinkedIn ecosystem. So if you're, big, if you're a big LinkedIn user, you can, you, you can pick up some gig work through your LinkedIn contacts if you use LinkedIn Profinder. Then, then, you, then you, of course, this is a cute name, Cloud Peeps, people that work over the cloud. <laughs> Cloudpeeps.com. That started in 2015. It's got a global focus. I, I, I looked at all these sites this morning, sort of rummaged around, and then they all have a broad range of jobs. They all work the same way. You've got here localsolo.com. Now that that site was built in Vancouver with Canadians, and it's uh, and it's and it's mostly tech centric. 
You got freelancer.com. That's an Australian site. It's kind of interesting. But they acquired a lot of these other job sites, so they became global through acquisition, and they've got a lot of work there. And then you've got the uh, the gigworker.com. It's all types of gig, job, gig jobs. Many of them are non-technical. So what you want to do is that's just a few of them. And you'll, when I post the list on Monday, you, you'll, be able to, you'll be able to go to the stratford.edu. Um, you'll be able to go to techtalk.stratford.edu and take a look at this list if you didn't get all of that. Now, here's the key. Most of these sites, knock are uh, kind of a social networking element to them. What you want to do, you want to post a profile, and then people comment on your work. <clears throat> and, and they want to see kind of a work history. So what I recommend is you figure out what you like to do, and, and if you have some examples of things that you've done that you could, you could actually link to, that would be good in your profile. And then what you want to do, you can bid on jobs. So when you're just getting started, I would just bid low. Yeah. So the, the, the point is not to make a lot of money in the beginning. It's to get a lot of five-star reviews. Right, right. That's the point. So you want to build your profile. So it's probably not wise to be on 10 of these because it's hard to have, you know, a strong linkage with, uh, with people and projects your own 10 sites. So, but so pick maybe two or three that you like the most. So you like the format, you like the kind of jobs they have, and then just start bidding low. And then over time, once you get these five, because in the five-star reviews, they're not going to say, oh, this is really cheap. They're just going to say, what a great job you did. And then you'll be able to bid more. And, I think this is really a great way to get to, you know, to get some side work. And there's a real opportunity during this shutdown to do that. And it allows you to build your skill base, you know, because you can take an easy job. And, and I'm telling you, the, the best way to learn is by doing. So it could be that you would take a job that you're not quite sure how to do it and just learn how to do it. And so you learn by doing that's 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 what we do at Stratford. So that's uh, that was really a good thought, Knock, and good luck with that. I want to hear whether you picked any of these sites uh, in the future. We got an email from Doug in Baton Rouge. Dear Dr. Schertz and Jim, I want to update my cell phone. It's a track phone. I want one with a larger screen and better functions. Yeah, the track the track phone is has sort of been simplified for uh, I you know their their claim to fame simplified for the older generation so that you know it's one one button does everything right. but it's but it's not as functional as say an iPhone or um, or an Android phone it doesn't have all that capacity now uh, Doug is saying I want to get a factory refurbished Apple or Samsung phone you know to fit my pocketbook because he he don't he don't want to, he doesn't want to spend a thousand dollars on on a mobile sure. phone. He's looking at something like an Apple 7 or an Apple 8 or a mm -hmm. Galaxy series. Now, he's afraid that these older phones are not supported with security updates. And he says, so what happens if, uh, if the phone's not supported and you don't get updates in the, in the operating system? Is there a risk at using them? And can I, can I make phone calls? Can I surf the web? What's your recommendation? I always appreciate your insight. Well, uh, Doug, if you plan to surf the web with your cell phone, if you plan to get emails with your cell phone that come over the Internet and you're going to probably get some nasty emails that come in from these uh, scammers, you need a phone that really receives regular security updates. Yeah. Now, if you're only going to use it for phone calls, uh, that's really not that important. But once you have Internet access, you really need the security updates. So uh, 
I would recommend um, now most of uh, most of the mobile phones are supported for about five years. So you if you if you get a brand new one, you can count on five years of support before it rolls off the support cycle. And normally after five years, the phone is toast because right. because the battery just poops out on you. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is get a phone that's got at least three years of shelf life in, in, in the support cycle. Now, for instance, the iPhone 5 is no longer supported. iPhone 6 support is going to drop off next year. The iPhone 7 is, is going to be supported for a few more years, probably three more years. Uh, now, I'm thinking this iPhone SE that Apple is just releasing, it's a pretty cost-effective solution. It's like, you know, $400. And it's basically an iPhone 11 in an iPhone 8 case. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but Apple's Apple's trying Apple's trying to cut the cut the price of their phones because they realize that they could not compete with the Android market with these, you know, twelve hundred dollar right. uh, mobile phones. So that may be a good option. If, um, now, if you want to get, uh, they're also, if you want to save money, um, uh, this SE, this iPhone SE is kind of special because they try to make that a budget phone right out of out of the wicket. If you want to save money, normally you get prop the sweet spot for saving money is to is to get a phone which is about two years old and it has three years left in support. So a two year old phone, the prices really drop. And and if you get a, a refurbished two year old phone, you save another hundred dollars mm -hmm. usually. That's about it. So um, but do not get a phone that's not supported. Uh, right. It will be cheap, but it was not recommended. Well, you know, one of the other things when I when I upgraded from <laughs> what did I have? We had sixes, right, Doc? Yeah, six S. So when I went from the six to the ten, I was thinking about going to the eight. And uh, the guy at the Apple store, actually the uh, AT and T store, says, you know, the problem with that is it's not just the security support, but it's the ability to upgrade or up, uh, you know, upgrade the um, the operating uh, operating system. At some point, the phones won't accept the new operating system. So that's, that's, that's right. something else to take into consideration. That's right. So the five years that I was talking about was accepting the operating system updates oh, on the operating system. Okay. Yeah. That was I, I that got confused. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I didn't make that clear because what happens if if they don't? Uh, yeah, so they will. Actually, that's a very good point. I want um, they they don't support once they don't support your phone with a new operating system. I I, I think you're just out of. I think yeah. you're just out of support completely. Yeah, yeah. Because they don't they don't go back in and update the old operating systems that aren't supported. You know, they just they just they they do security updates for the most recent. Uh, operating systems, and if your phone can't use one of the more recent operating systems, it's not going to get security updates. So I think they're really synonymous, but not quite the same. Right, right, right. We got, a, we, we got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim, and especially my buddy, Mr. Big Voice. Oh, glad to see Mr. Big Voice did not pay him a visit last week. Yeah. Okay, I just stumbled across a description of the LITHP programming language. It's apparently one of the lesser-known programming languages. I always loved the show, even in lockdown. Your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Had you heard of well, this? No, it. I'd never heard of it. Uh, but <laughs> so I, I, it's I, it, little it known is, then. It is well. It's actually a, kind of a joke programming language. It's ah. a funny programming language. L I T H P <laughs> was created by John Unger Zussman. 
This unremarkable language, as they say in Wikipedia, <laughs> is distinguished by the absence of the letter S in the character set. Whenever an S shows up, they replace it with TH. So what he did, Lisp, L-I-S-P, is, um, is, is a programming language which was designed to evaluate rules. It was one of the original languages developed for artificial intelligence. So he took Lisp, but you see in the name, L-I-S-P, he'd replace the S with a T-H. Uh -huh. So he called it L-I-T-H-P. <laughs> <laughs> and so he went through Lisp, and wherever there was, was an S, he replaced it with a T-H, and he created his own special programming language. It was kind of a joke, yeah. but uh, he had fun doing it. Um, so I have to say, I've never used that language. I didn't really know about that language, but it was kind of fun to read about. We got an email from Helen in Rockville. Dear Doc and Jim, I enjoy creating videos to share with my family. Many of them have told me that I could create a YouTube video. I could create YouTube videos and I can make money because they, they love my videos. Huh. How does that actually work? How can you make money from video content? I'm ready to give it a shot, Helen in Rockville. Well, Helen, the first step to make money on YouTube is you have to make content that's engaging. And right. so you have to make good music, get very engaging. And, and it sounds like you're already doing that. Uh, that once you have some engaging videos that you're uploading, you need to create a channel, a YouTube channel, which is your, and you, you name the channel. Then as soon as you have 1000 subscribers to your channel and 4,000 hours of accumulated watch time, over a 12-month period, Google will let you join the YouTube Partner Program. That's when you make money. Once you are in the YouTube Partner Program, you can monetize your video using Google AdSense. These are ads that Google places in your YouTube video. So when somebody wants to play your YouTube video, there will be a 15-second video ad that's played before they can look at your YouTube video. And advertisers pay to have that ad placed. They either pay for impressions, how many times the ad shows, or they pay for clicks, how many times people click on the ad. There, there are two ways to sell these ads. Now, what YouTube does, they give the creator 55% of that ad revenue, hmm. and, and, then, and then YouTube takes 45% of it. Now, but they have a rule. If your YouTube video com contains any foul language, any adult content, any violence, or any subjects that they deem unacceptable, they will not allow ads to run. So they don't want bad YouTube videos to make money. And that's a way to encourage people to put out good YouTube videos. Now, that's the main way you make money on YouTube. I was reading about this. Uh, somebody was telling me about this one woman. She was from Vietnam. She came over here and she married a, uh, an American. And she started making YouTube videos where she would just show life in America. And she would speak in Vietnamese and her husband would speak in English. And they would have sub if they were if she was speaking Vietnamese, they'd have English subtitles. And this became a huge success in Vietnam. And everybody in Vietnam was watching her you know, doing barbecues here in America, going out her boat in America. And, and she was speaking Vietnamese to them. She got so much, she got like two or three million users. She makes a million dollars a year 
on her YouTube channel. Hmm. Think about that. That's a lot. And she's just and she's just doing life on Lake Michigan. <laughs> you know, Doc, I think you should do that. Like <laughs> yeah, at, life do. at the Bay House. Life at the Bay House. So so the thing is, a lot of people. I mean, there are so many creative videos out there, but the key is you have to be able to make creative content on an ongoing basis and, and do it in a way that's, uh, that's engaging and that teaches. And so, um, and so there is real money to make, be made with this. Now, a second form of, of making money is if you get brand sponsorship. So suppose she was showing people in Vietnam how to, how to barbecue, and then she had a particular barbecue sauce, you know, Mm -hmm. Uncle Dave's barbecue sauce. So maybe Uncle Dave will pay her to use his barbecue sauce in her video. So she can become an influencer, as they say, uh -huh. in the influencer market. Now, for example, early in her career, Michelle Fan was, drew, you know, was doing YouTube videos about how to put on makeup. And she drew the attention of a, of a cosmetics brand, Lancome, with her makeup tutorials. And all of a sudden, boom. She had a sponsor and was making a lot of money from Lancome using Lancome makeup in her tutorials. There, if you want to do this, there are 700 agencies that will match up a brand on YouTube with, uh, with a particular company. Now, they do the matchups on both YouTube, on FaceTube, on Instagram, on Snapchat. So once you are up and running, you could then go to one of these agencies to see whether you could become an influencer. Then the last way you can make money on YouTube, uh, you can do this through channel memberships. And then fans can pay a monthly recurring fee in exchange for bonus content like badges, emojis, special videos, live chat. Now, YouTube makes this option available once you have reached 30,000 subscribers. You have 30,000 subscribers. YouTube gives you, the gives you the chance to sell membership into your channel. So those are the three ways to make money, and the quickest way is to just do the just become a uh, YouTube partner once you get a thousand subscribers and four thousand hours of accumulated video. See, what, so yes, go ahead. I would pay money to see the Rick Schertz uh, YouTube channel with you getting the jet, jet, jet ski unstuck from the sandbar. Yeah, or, that and or, I, that happens to me. Or often. the or the laptop flying off the car roof. That'd be a great that's, video. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's you know down here in uh, uh, Northern Neck area, there are a lot of sandbars around. Yeah. And I have and uh, I have run over. And the, the problem is, you run over a sandbar in a jet ski, you suck up seaweed into the jet ski, and yeah. then it won't go. It's terrible. It's terrible. So you have to jump problems. out. So you have to jump out in the water reach in underneath the jet ski and pull all the seaweed out. And I've, and I, you know, and really it's embarrassing to say I've had, that's happened to me more than once, but, but I, but the fact is I am learning. It's, it's happening less frequently. You know, there's these things that you can find on the interwebs called uh, nautical charts and you could see, you know, the shallows and the shoals and things like that. So you could figure out where the sandbars are. I can do that. But yeah, you know, well, it's what is always given me, I always, and it's not necessarily the, 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 the proper choice to take the shortest path to where you want to go. That's because correct. Because that might, that might be right over the sandbar. That's correct. So, so now I actually, I, I now know that my jet ski has a depth finder. So I can, I can look at that to see what the depth is. Ah. And 
And so and so that is very useful. So now 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 that I've learned how to use the equipment, I'm kind of avoiding it. Now we got an email from Craig in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got a USB flash drive with several hundred photos on it that I scanned during visit to my grandmother's house. These are family pictures, be difficult to replace, and something would happen to them. I don't want to lose these photos. I was wondering how long can I count on this thumb drive recraining them? retaining them if I lock it up in a fireproof safe, Craig and Fairfax. Well, Craig, th this is really a bad approach, but yes. I'll, I'll answer, I'll answer your question first and I'll tell you what we should do. Well, manu most manufacturers claim that their thumb drives will last 10 years. However, if it's a used thumb drive, I wouldn't count on it lasting uh, maybe half of that time or two thirds of that time, five to seven years. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's used, in addition, uh, it is wise if you keep your thumb drive stored in a cool, dry location, it will maximize its life. However, a thumb drive is not a proper permanent storage mechanism. You need to put that on a, uh, need to get, copy them onto a hard drive, a US, you get a USB hard drive, plug it into your computer, transfer them all to the USB uh, hard drive. Uh, I would also put them on the cloud. I mean, I've yeah. got, I've got my critical picture stored on an external hard drive, and then I also have a cloud account. Actually, I got—I don't know how I, I did it with three cloud accounts. I, I, you know, you know how they, you just kind of sign up for them and then they're there. And so I've got three cloud accounts. So I've got stuff stored everywhere, and that redundancy assures that you'll always have them. But I would never. Thumb drives are good to transport data, but not for permanent storage of data. Listen, we love your emails. We do indeed. Email us at. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. You can find us on the web and learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. <clears throat> If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in 
Yes, today we're going to feature Eric S. Wan. He's a software engineer from China who founded Zoom, a video communication company. Now, Wan was born in 1969 and raised in the Shandong province of China. In 1987, he enrolled in the Shandong University of Science and Technology in his hometown. He wanted to stay close to his parents. His girlfriend attended school a 10-hour train ride away. Wow. He took the train to visit her. And on this long commute to visit his girlfriend, he swore that he would develop a way to visit her virtually and avoid the commute. That was the inspiration, actually, that motivated him to start Zoom, ultimately. Mm. In 1991, he earned a degree in applied math with a minor in computer education. Then he, won, he went on and received his master's degree from the China University of Mining and Technology in Beijing, where he started his first business, creating human resource software for large enterprises. Uh, after he got his master's degree, he married his girlfriend at age 22 because that 10-hour commute had to go. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great now, reason he, to get married. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he wanted to come to America because back then, in the uh, you know in the uh, you know in the early 90s, the internet was big. The internet boom was really hitting the U.S. strongly, and. Uh, you know, by, you know, 94 is when the browser came out. And so everything was like Internet was really humming in the U.S., but it hadn't really hit China very much at all. And he wanted to come to America to get in on that Internet action. However, getting a work visa was extremely difficult. His applications were denied eight times. Mm. He kept applying, 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 and finally... On his ninth try, his work visa was accepted, and he got a job with WebEx in 1997. Now, WebEx was a uh, was a remote, uh, you know, w remote work video company that that started back in uh, in 1997, and he was the tenth employee of the WebEx. So he made a he made a few bucks out of the WebEx deal when they went public. And so he moved to Silicon Valley. Now, here's the thing. When he got there, he had to write code. He could not speak English. <laughs> <laughs> he had trouble communicating with anybody, you know, in the workplace. So he, but he, he could communicate through code, which is the universal IT language. It is. And he fortunately wrote in the same programming language that they were using at WebEx. So he's pretty good at it. And he just, wrote, he just buckled down and wrote code. Uh, by 2006, he had er learned English, <laughs> and he earned an executive MBA from, Stratford, from the Stanford University School of Business. Now, WebEx continued to expand. In 2007, WebEx was purchased by Cisco for $3.2 billion dollars. At the time, WebEx had 2,800 employees, and, and he was number 10. He was really up at the top. He was VP of engineering, and he supervised 800 developers. After the acquisition, he became corporate vice president at Cisco. Now, but uh, Eric Wan, he's not a big company kind of guy. He's like an entrepreneur. He likes 
He likes more of the startup environment. Mm -hmm. And and he was getting frustrated at Cisco because Cisco was trying to sell expensive, complicated teleconferencing hardware. They just wanted to make money on the hardware and sort of the telecom software was kind of a throwaway. He felt that Cisco was acting too slowly to reconfigure the underlying systems uh, behind its meeting software. Uh, customers wanted new things and Cisco wasn't rolling them out. He thought it was just lethargic, moving too slowly. He just wasn't happy with it. And Cisco was not adjusting to the shift in the marketplace where there was a rise in the use of smartphones and tablets in the workplace. Because you see, Cisco made a lot of money on this teleconferencing hardware that was installed in conference rooms. And they didn't want to have people teleconference with a smartphone. They didn't make any money on the hardware. So they just were really slow to move on that market. So Eric Wan decided, I've got to leave Cisco. They're just not going in the direction I want to go. So in 2011, he left Cisco to start Zoom video communications. Within a month, 40 of the WebEx engineers followed him because he, he ran the development team of 800. And Zoom unified... Uh, cloud video conferencing, they made simple online meetings, they made group messaging simple. They had software-defined conference room solutions that Cisco hated. They don't want software conference rooms, they want hardware in real conference rooms. So he built a new platform entirely from scratch. Juan's thought was that he would let Cisco go after the huge enterprise contracts and sell them complicated, expensive, video conferencing solutions, and then Zoom would go after the largely ignored market of smaller companies. So he raised $3 million in seed money from friends. Three months later, he closed a B round with well-known VCs. His paying customer was Stanford University. I mean, that's a yeah. pretty good customer. That's, customer. that's really good. That's where he got his executive MBA, so he probably knew the people there in the business uh, business department. Now, he told his wife that his video conference software would be so good that he would only have to travel twice a year. Hmm. So he, he didn't need it. She did not want him to do anything. It was interesting during the, it's not here in the up here, but when he was starting it up, he used to call every single customer personally who they would get on, and he say, "I'm the CEO of Zoom." And uh, now he would email them and he would talk to them on the phone. And this one customer said, wait a minute here. Zoom must be a fraud. The CEO is not going to be emailing me at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> I just don't believe it. This has got to be some sort of autoresponder pretending to be C the CEO. And so uh, so Eric Wan, he says, no, I am the CEO. And he says, what, why, don't we, why don't I just give you a phone call and we can talk? And the, the guy just went away. But then he, he didn't call Zoom a fraud anymore. So that so their initial buildup it was really focused on the the customer and that's what he did when he was at when when he was at, at Webex and in Cisco he was so customer centric which is why Zoom became very successful. Now, the service started January 2013 and by May of 2013 it had reached one million participants. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University. This is Tech Talk Radio. How the CD could uh, be used to record audio files in a digital format. First of all, you have to sample the analog signal. An analog signal is a continuous wave, and you have to sample it periodically and figure out what the value is at that sample rate. Now, you have to sample it. There's something called the Nyquist limit. The Nyquist limit is what is the maximum frequency that you can uh, reproduce at a certain sampling rate. And it turns out that if you want to produce a frequency of 20 kilohertz, which is about the highest frequency that the human ear can hear, you have to sample it at twice that rate in order to be on, in order to not be limited by the Nyquist limit. So you have to sample it at least 40,000 hertz, 40,000 times a second in order to do that. Now the actual CD uh, wants to be just a little bit above that Nyquist limit, so they sample at 44.1 kilohertz. And each time they sample it, they digitize that uh, that signal using a 16-bit word, which means they can digitize it to about 65,000 levels. A 16-bit word has about 65,000 levels. So if you take the data stream from a CD, it's 44.1 kilohertz times 2 bits per sample, or 16 bits, and that gives you the bit rate. Now, what uh, is happening with MP3s is they don't want the MP3 file to be so big, so they sample it at a lower rate. They have a smaller word, and they have less resolution. And so many MP3s, when you listen to them, they really are not CD quality because they'd just be too big if they were. Mm -hmm. And people that are, have a good ear can frequently hear that. Of course they can. And that's, 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 one, it, that's kind of a defeating point of this whole thing, I would think, isn't it? I mean, uh, the whole part of the point of the CD was to get better audio quality. To get better audio quality. And what the what the MP3 does, just to sort of a sidetrack, the MP3 is a lossy data compression. And when they developed it, they, they had people listening to it, and they'd say, well, I don't think most people could hear the 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 symbol uh you know playing just at the moment that the drums were going off so they get rid of the sort of the symbol sounds during the drum period and so they go in and they selectively remove features that most people can't hear and they they were then to have people listen to the mp3 say oh yeah that sounds the same to me but see but it's not really it was not really the same and so it's a lossy compression and it really depends on audio perception and some people with better perception 
it bothers them more than others. Yeah, to, That's the, right. to the discerning ear, it's it's very noticeable, yeah. the, the difference between And we've talked about this in previous shows. The world's first CD was manufactured by Philips in August of 1982, and everybody, it was this group. <laughs> is it that That's right, Dr. Church? That's right. That, is the group. that was the first commercial CD that came out. See, now that came out in 1982. <laughs> and look at this. The original patent for the CD was in 1970. The first commercial was 1982. That's that 10-year delay. So I was going to say, that bears out what you said in the last segment, that technology moves, it seems, in 10-year increments. That's right. It takes about 10 years to go from the research lab to production. And we have technology to thank for this. <laughs> Observations from the bunker. Okay. Now, the the coronavirus shutdown is going to change our attitudes forever. Yes. I mean, what's going to happen? There's going to be now a move, I was thinking about it, to to put more robots into factories so that we don't have to worry about people. You know, and I think there's, there's already an acceleration to put more robotics into factories. Companies are actually going to like this remote operation. They're going to continue to, to do more of it because they, they, they don't have to get all this expensive office space. And it's a lot cheaper to have a distributed operation. And then you can hire people from lower wage markets in the country. And uh, on average, you can save money. AI and machine learning is going to continue to absorb routine office jobs. Self-driving trucks, caravans, are going to be deployed to keep our supply chain filled. So what is happening is this shutdown is sort of highlighting how technology can take over. So now, how is humanity going to fit into this new framework? Let me just point out what technology (laughs) just did to us. (laughs) Yes. That is true. Technology is not perfect. And no, of course, it is not. A person had to reboot the router. That's correct. So the question is, how will humanity fit into this framework of this brave new world? Now, and, and you sort of ask, and so you ask yourself a question. Why are people, why, is, why are human beings so special? And, and how can we adapt to this change? Because actually, it's not only a change, it's an opportunity. And how can we adapt to that? And that's what I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about that. And and it's, uh, you know, just as man adapted in the beginning to dominate the world, he must adapt now to continue to, spro- to, to prosper in the brave new world. And uh, every person has something special built within them that makes this possible, the human mind. It is a miraculous learning machine. With the mind, we can create and we can learn and we can adapt. And this ability to learn and to change through mental processes is what makes human beings unique. So we need to use our learning engine to adapt to the new circumstances. And it's really quite an opportunity because we actually have within each person a learning engine that can adapt. Now, in the past, if you think about it, only royalty and aristocrats had time to learn, yes. to learn the arts. And all the working guys had to go in and just turn those cranks in the factory. So now, as we become continuous learners, 
And as we try to figure out how to fulfill the potential of our own personal learning engine, think about this. Everyone is now royalty. Mm -hmm. And I think with this remote operation, we're going to actually have less time commuting and more time to learn. Now, if we're going to become continuous learners and to adapt, that puts a heavy responsibility on education and on educators. How can you provide an educational framework when you when things are changing at an exponential rate and then you really and so the hard skills of today are going to be outmoded in 5 years. So what do you learn and what what are the long-term skill sets that that people have to have if they're going to be successful? Well the first thing is you have uh, people have to develop a growth mindset that they can really achieve anything. That failure is not bad, you just learn from failure and and if you have a growth mindset, you realize that every challenge that you perceive, you actually grow from it, whether you succeed or not. And that once you have that ability, that a growth mindset that you don't fear failure, you're going to go after bigger and bigger things. And you do that only through project-centric work. You work on projects that are really challenging, and you learn from them. You know, like earlier today, I talked about that gig economy. You could go onto one of these gig sites, pick a project that's really challenging, and work on it. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're basically going back to school. And if you succeed on a tough project, you're, you're going to build up self-confidence. You've got a growth mindset. You have to have the ability to think through a problem you've never seen before, because now we're, we're encountering all kinds of problems we've never seen before. Well, don't, yes. you, don't you think that, it, you know, th th this all of what you're talking about requires people to have a foundation and – uh, and requires people to, to, to be industrative and have uh, uh, the uh, drive to do these things. There are a lot of people out there, frankly, who aren't. This will leave a lot of people in the dust, don't you think? I think humanity is fundamentally curious. We are born with curiosity. Uh, and what you have to do is ignite that internal curiosity. I mean, if you look at how a baby learn, you know, a baby, when, they, when they're born— their mind, they don't even know how to, how to see. They don't know how to hear. They learn visual processing, audio processing after they're born. And they program their mind on their own. I mean, a baby learns language without a book. You know, a baby learns all kinds of things on their own. Babies are naturally curious. They stick their finger in every electrical socket they can find. They are curious about the world. Mm -hmm. And what we have to do, and what happens, traditional education squeezes out our curiosity, and turns us into little uh, memorizing robots. I'm telling you, everybody has innate curiosity. And so the key is you have to find out what you're curious about. It could be art. It could be nature. It could be many things. And, and, it's, and, and as soon as you don't have the pressure of having to crank that, turn that crank in the factory every day, and you've got the luxury that royalty had, being able to think, then you you have to, you know, uncover your own innate ability, your own innate curiosity. I think it's within everyone. I mean, you know, but I'm an educator, and so no matter what student comes to me, I believe they have true potential. So I disagree with you, Jim. I think everybody has it, but it's not the same for everyone. I know, but I think a lot of people aren't going to uh, take advantage of it and don't know where to go in order to 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 do this. I, I think I really think a lot of people are if 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 what you foretell is going to happen, I think a lot of people are going to be left out. There are a lot of people left out now, and I think even more so. There, 
There are well, I, I think I think uh, educational institutions like Stratford can help with this. Uh, can can provide some guidance, some framework True. for learning. See, so the thing is, there's kind of a, you need a learning framework. Some people need a learning framework. Then once they learn how to learn, then they learn what they're interested in. And there's just something. I mean, so, you, you, I think you've landed on something very important here, and that is at Stratford, you guys have got a framework for to learn virtually. The public school systems are an unmitigated disaster. I mean, learning is not happening now for America's right. school children. I mean, yeah. but but you guys thought forward. You have a way of doing it. Uh, by by and large, the public school system does not. And so, well, we've 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 got project-centric courses. We're all online. Students are working remotely on projects, and we we use Zoom. By the way, they all get together as a group. They talk. They work on group projects, and 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 the teacher really becomes the coach, and uh, and the and and the teacher becomes the coach. So I, you know, everybody. Okay, so listen. So if you're just a just some guy or a woman at home saying, "What can I do?" You see, everybody's had a dream of what they would like to do. Everybody has a dream sometime. Gee, I would just love to do that. You should just take, try to think back in your childhood and things that you've dreamt about that you really wanted. I mean, it could be, it could be building something. It doesn't have to all be, you know, it doesn't have to be mathematics and it could be building. It could be many, many things, but you have to go back and recapture what ignited your interest and your passion. And that means you've got to peel back probably a lot of scales that have covered that over because I'm telling you children with their natural curiosity know where it's at and we have to go back and become childlike. So I think it requires introspection. And I do think that this time with remote uh, operation, we have the, we have the time to be introspective and, uh, and to think about these things and think about broader things, but what does it mean to be happy? Uh, what can I? Because when people are doing something that uh, aligns with their passion, they're happy. Listen, wow, this uh, this hour went really fast. It did. We love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And of course, go to the Stratford University website, stratford.edu, and check out all those programs that are now being offered remotely. You can enroll in them right now, and we've got virtual open houses all the time. We'll see you next week for more Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio online.